All right. Morning, Hillcrest family. Oh, man. So, uh, something, something I'm excited about coming up. It is, uh, it is part of our rhythm around here. I'm just excited for Triple Treat. Every, uh, every fall season, this is a phenomenal way we get to be invested in the community around us. Hey, Brian. Hey, Stacy. It's good to see you guys. All the way from Illinois. All the way from Illinois. Um, oh, man, speaking of, my best man, best man, one of my good friends, roommate, was, uh, he works in Illinois, uh, Louisiana now with KPMG, was up here for a wedding. Uh, his sister-in-law was getting married in the North Woods because his, their in-laws are Chicago people. And I just got another window and a feeling like a Wisconsinite this past week. And I'm like, man, those Illinois people taking all those cabins up in the North Woods. <laughs> <laughs> Neither here nor there. Triple treat. Triple treat. Just excited for a way that we get to uh, be connected and invested in our community for the good of our community. And, and this year, uh, rather than having 17 sites and stations, uh, we've narrowed it. And so there's now neighborhoods. Because when I arrived 2019, we had a consolidated uh, extravaganza at the high school, and it was just mass chaos. The, the amount of conversations you could have, they were like 30 seconds. Then God and his sovereignty brought COVID, and, and it shifted the trajectory of how we facilitated this, this event, and we moved it to the neighborhood. It actually provided opportunities to have 10, 15, 20-minute conversations. So rather than trying to encourage people to scatter to 17 different sites, we've consolidated it to neighborhoods to say, hey, you can get the full triple treat experience in this neighborhood with everything you would want and a bunch of candy, and then we're encouraging people. What we've missed out on is some of that larger gathering, and so we're encouraging people to come back to our campus uh, for a large group gathering back here after that. And so if you're able to invest in some way in this, I would love, I would strongly encourage, this is a great way to just demonstrate our care, our love for the community, and spark real meaningful conversations. Something else that's exciting for us around here um, Jim Willie has accepted an invitation to jump into our elder candidacy process. And, and so that's good news. That's good things for us. Yeah, come on, Jen. Thank you. Yeah. And, and so for us, we're elder-led, not elder-ruled, elder-led, congregational. We're a congregational form of government. So our congregation, our members vote to affirm our elders. You can see that in step five. And so Dan is finishing up his elder candidacy. And then the congregation will then vote to affirm. We're non-denominational, which means we don't have some kind of hierarchy of denominational oversight. And so this is our attempt to try and produce some level of structure and scaffolding around directionality and leadership. And so for us, it's a, it's a five-fold process. There is learning in the team. So Jim will be with the team without guarantee of being on the team. So he'll jump in with our elder gatherings. Uh, without guarantee of jumping on to the team. And there's a self-assessment and constructive feedback. And so he's been a life group leader here for two years. Uh, Kathy has served in our kids' ministry around here. Um, and his kids, his oldest son, Zach, is one of our All Nations partners currently in New Zealand. Um, his three other sons running and gun in a variety of ways. Uh, but the self-assessment, it, it provides, he's opening himself up to receive feedback in this journey of, in spiritual life. That third element, theological development, again, doctrine matters. We updated our doctrinal statement about two years ago. And so any elder candidate walks through Grudem, kind of in a learning cohort. 
And so he's agreed to journey through this systematic theology. We care about what it means to think deeply about God around here. And then a holistic process of discerning leadership readiness. We're assuming that should you interact with Jim and you have concerns, you will come let us know. It is a holistic process that as he continues to be invested in other ways around the life of our body, it's a way to spark conversation, not just this box of elder, but rather the life of the body. And then fifth, what I love, actually coming before the congregation and being asked questions. So we're expecting that you're also growing in your view of God and can come prepared to ask questions, believing you're affirming Jim as one of our elders. So that, that's exciting. And it's tied to what we would say, three big initiatives. As you give, you're not giving to Hillcrest, you're giving through Hillcrest towards our mission. And so last week, we just wrapped up our Living Proof series. We launched this Everyday Missionary Fund. If your life group or you as an individual desire to apply. This is the hope. If you're praying and watching that God might be doing something, we as a church family want to endorse and support that. And so you would apply and um, there will be a process of affirming that support and direction of an idea you might have. This internship greenhouse, I was staggered by, uh, by a, uh, a stat I heard from Barna recently, just last month. Uh, in 2015, 70% of churches would say they uh, Protestant churches would say they, they did have mechanisms to train and equip. Uh, in 2023, that number went down to 35% of Protestant churches had this as kind of a, a value that was practiced. And so for us, we do. We want to raise up and train and equip our next generation. Um, you guys might think I'm young. 16% of all Protestant pastors are under the age of 40. I'm 39. So, man, you, you might think it's just staggering to me, just how, do, how does the church keep going forward in a place that, that is in, ah, that's other stuff. Anyway, so that's that one. And then third, what does it mean for us to be a hub? Man, being biblically saturated and seeing more thirsty lives encounter the gospel. And so for us, that, that, those are the initiatives this coming year. So thankful for you guys joining in that. Um, and we are jumping back into Luke after a few weeks here. And so who can tell me? Who can tell me what those different movements in Luke have been? Who's going to be a brave soul that can tell us what those movements in Luke have been that we've journeyed through? Don't be a coward, Tom. <laughs> what would, and this is like pulling teeth sometimes with you guys. It's just a, it's a privilege. <laughs> Where have we been in Luke? What are those movements? The entrance of the king. Keep going. What's the next one? The teachings of the king. You're supporting. Because that was you, Ricky? Yeah. And then the third? Journey. The journey of the king. Lisa, would you just go give this to Ricky? It's a little crossway, study notes, um, journal Bible through Luke. Uh, that, that has been the movements thus far. The entrance of the king. Jesus arrives and Luke tells us, I'm writing this so that you have certainty in Christ. And then he moved to the teachings. And this summer, we entered into the journey of the king. And then in the spring, we're going to go to the cross, the victory. And then we might peek into Acts a little bit with the reign of the king. But as we jump back in, uh, for me, I've just been a little more subdued um, this week, maybe today, even just feeling a little more subdued. <laughs> and if you're thinking, David, this is you subdued, but I'm, 
I'm just feeling a little more subdued because as we enter into this text, it's just a heavier one. And, and the past few chapters in Luke 12 and 13, Jesus ha- has been calling people to repentance. And this morning, he's not talking to Pharisees. He's not talking to those who have yet to treasure Christ. Someone's going to ask a question from his followers, and he's going to respond to them. He's going to be speaking to those who have, on some level, already been following Jesus. And so he's going to, I think then, be speaking to us. Here's, Here's where he goes in Luke 13, 22 to 30. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. He's moving towards the cross. Jerusalem is in mind. What that means is the cross. He knows where he's headed. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And then he says to them, not the Pharisees, not those that have yet to treasure Christ, to this group that has been following him. They're following and they want to know. They hear him saying, repent and believe. They hear it. And so they rightly ask, will those who are saved be few? And Jesus takes the question and then answers the way he wants. He said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you. I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out, and people will come from the east and the west and from the north and the south and recline a table in the kingdom of God, and behold, Some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. Here's where it feels like he's going, and it just feels heavy to me. Many are interested in being included in Jesus' kingdom who even think they are part of Jesus' kingdom. And so Jesus shares these words because he longs for all to come to repentance. And he shares these words because he wants to prevent them from being bitterly disappointed when they find out that they are not. Jesus longs for all to come to him, and and he wants to prevent anyone from being bitterly disappointed. So pray with me, and and we're going to trust that God is working in and through this this process. So God, whatever might be on our hearts, wherever our mind might have gone as we hear these words, if it's to uh, anger or frustration or or church baggage that we might be carrying that, that has been um, bullied on us in our growing up years, if it's, if it's distractions that are weighing in on us and all the things of life, um, if, if it's uh, levity when it comes to this stuff, help us hear what you have for us through these words and may we hear your voice as we read your scriptures. Always for your glory we pray. Amen. Amen. So here's where we're headed and I hope Hope, uh, hope you hear from Jesus, not David, this morning. Many who think they are a part of God's family are actually not. Here, here's where he goes in the text. 
He comes right out and just says, salvation is a narrow door. There is the exclusivity of Jesus. He describes it that way. He says to them, enter through the narrow door. There is not a variety of ways in. There is one way, and he describes himself as the way to life. To answer the question, who are those? Are they going to be few? He says there is one way, the narrow door. And then he builds on that and says, and the way in, he controls. Here's how he describes it. Being good is not enough. Enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Jesus, Jesus is controlling those who come in in his name through that narrow door. And he told us that just in 13. He, he gave two situations and he said, life isn't about karma. It's not about those who died. It is about you and your choice today. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you all will likewise perish. Again, another situation, and they, and they wonder, what happened to those people? Jesus says, it's not about those people, it's about you. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And then it feels like there's a growing seriousness. Many think they have fulfilled Jesus' criteria. He says to them, Many in that group think they've fulfilled Jesus' criteria. Here's what he says. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside in the knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. They think they fulfilled Jesus' criteria, and yet the door was shut, and they're confused as to why that's the case. They were were fully thinking that they had had the door open to them. One of my fears in life, probably the only, probably have a few. This is a big one for me because I I love you guys, right? (laughs) That someone might stand before God for eternity and say, based upon what I heard David say, I thought I was good. That you would get here and say, well, David's sad, (laughs) May you choose Jesus. That's, that's the heart of this morning's call. When once the master of the house had risen, he shut the door. Lord, open to us, and then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Many will be sorrowfully disappointed when their self-deceived hopes are revealed. Because when they're standing at the door, they begin listing the ways to which they thought they were in. Here's how Jesus recounts it. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, proximity, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. There's a weight that comes with Jesus' words this morning, wherever your mind might go. And and then the question, I think that elicits in me, is so, so Jesus, we don't want to be those people. Tell tell us what we ought to do because we don't want to be those people. And so Jesus answers. He's going to tell us we move with urgency and effort to confirm our connection. But did you notice how much attention he gave to it? What did he tell us about how we should make sure? He gives us one word. Strive. Jesus, I'd like a little bit more of what that means. 
to tell me what it means to strive. What, what would it look like for me to have confidence that I am entering through this narrow door? And, and what it seems in Luke's mind is that he's given us 12 chapters of what it means as he invites us to strive to enter through the narrow door. And so I, I want to at least attempt a little bit, and, and I don't think I'm going to share something new in this. It's actually going to be quite familiar. I imagine it might actually stir something up in you when you hear these words. Because what he says, strive, work at seeing Jesus. Proximity does not create intimacy. He's saying, it doesn't matter that you ate and drank with me. It's not about just proximity. He says, it's Jesus plus nothing. And so what are those ways we strive If you've grown up in and around the church, you've probably heard this from the time you walked in. You go to church, you read your Bible, and you pray. Then I love gathering on Sundays with those that treasure Jesus. This is a highlight of my week, gathering collectively. And then we read the text to hear from God for ourselves. And then we pray with desperate dependence to the God who hears. And as we jump into Luke... You're grabbing a study pack to journey through Luke. You you long to dig in. You long to do that in the context of relationship. But if you're like me, maybe two of those just just give you soul-crushing hurt or anxiety when you think of someone saying, read your Bible and pray more. Because you do the first one. You're like, well, I'm here. We're doing the church thing. And you just feel overwhelmed and bombarded by the other two. I hope around here when we hear strive, it's not trying to just simply produce spiritual life that doesn't flow from us treasuring Jesus. And what some people then try to do, it feels like as we look across evangelical America, we understand that those other two are are just not always as glamorous. And so we just make the Sunday morning gathering about as appealing as we possibly can. We we try and just dress up Sunday mornings and and diminish some of the weight of this because we don't, I mean, we just want hugs on a Sunday morning, right? I just want a slap on the butt sermon to feel good about myself so I could go back among my week. And that feels like where we've headed if you allow that in evangelical America because we just understand when I hear read the Bible and pray as a way to strive, it's just crushing to us because it sparks whatever baggage or spiritual behavior modification some spiritual bully might layer on us. But instead, what we've seen in Luke, we assess the fruit of our lives. What does it mean to strive? We keep longing to work at seeing Jesus. And we assess our spiritual lives. You ever walked into a doctor's office and seen this diagram? I just assume at any point you walk in there and, and you're going to see this and you're going to evaluate pretty quickly where you're at on that pain tolerance spectrum. And so we're going to come back to this in a minute to assess where we might find ourselves on this journey. But I want to pause because this text opens up a, a really heavy idea. And so we're just going to lean in for a second because uh, I don't know what you believe when it comes to your convictions about what happens after you die. Jesus speaks to it in this text. 
We know the time is coming soon where there will not be a second chance. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. And Jesus says, I will tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. And in that place where you're headed, where is that place? So if you know me, as I walk around this life, again, I'm a fairly positive half-glass full guy. But I walk around with a state of grief bordering on, don't hear me say I'm depressed, grief as we walk through our days because of what we believe about that place. As we walk through life, there's an awareness. And there's a quote from Charles Spurgeon. He says this, Beloved, these are such weighty things that I dwell upon them. I feel far more inclined to sit down and weep than to stand up and speak to you. Francis Chan, as he opens a book called Erasing Hell, he said, if you are excited to read this book, you have issues. Do you not understand the weight of which of what we are about to consider? We are exploring the possibility that you and I may end up being tormented in hell. Excited would be the wrong term to use here. Necessary would be more fitting. And so we're just going to spend a few minutes just asking the question, what does Jesus tell us about what this place is? 13% of all Jesus' words are dedicated to his view about what happens after you die. Pretty significant. And yet there's a grief that I walk through as I go through day to day, still joyful, always rejoicing, and yet grief simultaneously as we consider what the future could be for some apart from Christ. Here's what we're going to see about the view of hell as understood by Jesus. It's an eternal place. Includes fire, includes darkness, includes punishment, and exclusion from God's presence where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so here's what he says. Depart from me. Who's he talking to again? Those that claim to treasure him, he turns to them and says, I'm concerned that you might miss me. Because there's coming a day when all workers of evil will be in that place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out, don't press that too far to believe that maybe that someone in hell is looking up and seeing God. I don't know if we could press it that far. I want to read a few other places where Jesus references this place. And you're going to see those different categories we just listed. Matthew 13, just as the weeds are gathered and burned, so it will be, and they are thrown into a fiery furnace. So at the end of the age, there will be thrown, throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There's fire. There is a, he's describing what this place would be like. He continues earlier in Matthew 18. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands and two feet to be thrown into eternal fire. There's an eternality to it. To be thrown into the hell of fire. Again, that reality. 
John in Revelation speaks of that fire as well. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. This is a second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. We see this great serpent, the devil, thrown into the fire. And sometimes when we hear hell, we think, well, Satan is reigning in hell. Uh, That's nowhere in the biblical text. That comes from Milton's Paradise Lost, where he's describing from his vantage point what he thinks hell will be. Nowhere does the biblical text describe Satan reigning instead, much like anyone else. If their name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And then in Matthew and Jude, it describes darkness. Cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame. Wandering stars from whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Again, John, speaking in Revelation about this eternality and the smoke of the torment, goes up forever and ever. And then Paul and Jesus both speak to this, this, this uh, distance from the presence of God. Jesus says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Again, depart from me into this eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And then Paul picking up from Jesus. They will suffer away from the presence of the Lord. I don't know where your mind goes. <laughs> There's a grief that we carry when we consider what this means or what this looks like. And so for some, it begins to spark what objections to this reality. Because if your mind goes to, like Francis Chan said earlier, I'd rather, or Spurgeon said earlier, I'd rather sit and weep if you feel the reality of this. What are some objections And so this comes from a book by Mark Driscoll. I don't know what you feel about him. Uh, I appreciated his words in this particular book. Don't hear me say we endorse all that he did, but I appreciate the way he summarized these objections. What objections might start to rise in your heart or in the hearts of those you know? A loving God would not send billions of people to a horrible hell. Therefore, there can't be a God, atheism. A loving God would be more tolerant. He would continue to give people chances, universalism, until they came to believe. Hell just feels mean. And the eternal torment in hell is unjust punishment for those who have sinned for a few decades. It just feels like a disproportionate punishment. And so that would lead people to argue for something called annihilationism. And so for these four, a loving God would not send billions of people to a horrible hell. He quotes a guy named C.S. Lewis in a book called The Great Divorce. And I think rightly quotes him here saying this. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. To those who knock, it is opened. A loving God would not send people to a horrible hell, and yet he gives them up for what they want. People that reject God and want nothing to do with them, he's simply giving them what they chose. A loving God would be more tolerant. 
Wouldn't God give people continued opportunities? And yet we say to that, we go, ought we, for those that commit heinous crimes, be more tolerant? Or is there a just reality for those crimes? A loving God is tolerant for those who have chosen to follow him. And that he is loving and gracious and tolerant for those that want to follow him. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were opposed, he demonstrated grace and love and mercy in drawing us to ourselves. He is a loving God that longs for no one to perish. And hell just feels mean. It's just mean. To which we say again, (laughs) the way the biblical text describes it is filled with those that have lived a life antagonistic to a God. (laughs) It it is mean. (laughs) We heard separation, fire. It is the way the biblical text describes it. And eternal torment in hell is just unjust payment, punishment to those who have sinned for a few decades. It would lead us to say, wouldn't it be more fair that they were just annihilated? And some great theologians have argued for that. If you want to talk through that, I'd love to process through that. Uh, A hero of mine, John Stott, C.S. Lewis, I believe also, shared that conviction. And yet what we see, and you saw in those biblical texts, the word eternality continued to rise to the surface. So then some questions start to maybe stir in our hearts. What about people who have never heard about Jesus? Where would they go? What happens to those who have never had the opportunity? And so we we cling to a just and righteous and gracious God. And yet what we see in John and Acts and Romans, John tells us there is no other name under heaven that one must be saved but Jesus. There is an exclusivity in Romans Paul says everyone is without excuse. They have lived in a world that they look up. He calls a general revelation and sees the creation. The people who have never heard, what what happens? Another question that might bubble up in your heart. Do unborn babies and young children go to heaven? What happens? Maybe you've had a miscarriage. Maybe you've had someone who you grew up with, a sibling that died at an early age. God, what happens to those unborn babies or young children? We read in 2 Samuel, David cries out when his child is taken from him. He says, I can't go to you, but I, 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 you can't come to me, but I will go to you. What does he mean by that? Some will say that's him going to meet this child in heaven It seems what it is, is he's going to go to the grave someday. What happens? We cling to a gracious God. In Luke, we see John the Baptist spring and leap with joy in Elizabeth's womb. We trust that even in that, God was working. So the biblical text doesn't seem to give us a clear answer. And so what we do is we pray and long for God's grace to be showered. And trust his guidance in all things. And the inevitable question then becomes is, am I going to hell? And so Jesus gives us these words about a narrow door and says we strive to enter that narrow door. And so I want to return back to that assessing fruit. Because 
Because the cause is we read our Bible, we go to church, and we pray. Not under compulsion, not under obligation, but because we believe those things actually have an impact as we strive. And so these would be the effects of us striving to enter through the narrow door. When we think of that tolerance, I want you to consider where these effects that I'm about to list land on you. Where, where, where do you see yourself in this journey? We begin assessing our lives. We're overwhelmingly then increasing. We have a sense of helpless, hopeless, and desperation without Jesus. We don't just come to church to have a slap on the butt sermon and a little little uh, rah-rah. Instead, there's a weight. We are overwhelmingly aware of our need of a Savior. And then an increasing interest in Jesus and affection for him. We, we long to desire him more fully for our happiness to be found in him above anything else this life has to offer. I want you to be happier tomorrow in Jesus than you are today. This increasing interest in Jesus and an increasing devotion to Jesus' kingdom rather than the stuff of this world. This week, I was bombarded by about 46 texts from a group of guys I play fantasy basketball with. We've been playing fantasy basketball from, from college for about the past 20 years, just bombarded. And those text numbers, probably a few years ago, would have been 80 given my participation in the conversation. And yet as I continue to grow, I start caring less about the stuff of this world. There's an increasing recognition of the needs of others and a commitment to help those in need. Do you look around our county, do you look around our town, our city, and just say there's an overwhelming amount of need? That you long to be present and, and invest generously, generous relationships. Do for one what you wished you could do for many. Do, do you recognize and see and long to be present in those needs all around our community? Is there increasing joy and increasing trust in Jesus in all circumstances? Does it feel like I'm angry? I'm not angry. I grieve. I long for as many to be in eternity with us as possible. And I never want anyone to hear and say, well, David told me I was good. There's increasing joy and trust in Jesus in all circumstances. Is life challenging at times? And there's this gap from my actual state and my desired state. And I'm trying to trust that Jesus is present with me in it. And that he is working all things for the good of those who trust him. And I'm increasing in my joy and trust in him in all circumstances of life. I just assume every single one of us is facing something challenging in this moment or this week or this month or this year. And then an increasing desire to share our joy in Jesus with others. May we not see triple treat as just another event, but rather, I mean, I look around and I see as I drive through neighborhoods, maybe you see this too, just the demonic representation that just is reflected in some of the, some of the things that are decorse, just evidence of where people might be in their journey. Do we long that through triple treat, we might actually show the generosity that God's shown to us, we would show that to others. And then 
an increasing desire to experience eternal fellowship with Jesus. The text ends. If you've been reading Luke 12 and 13, every text felt like it ended negatively. You know where this one ends? Positive. Jesus says we have the promise of an eternal table fellowship with Jesus. Here's what he says in the text. We get to recline with Jesus at his table. Pick it up at verse 29. And people will come from east and west and north and south, and they will recline at the table in the kingdom of God. That this invitation is for all. And, And Luke is picking up on this messianic eschatological banquet, big words, of a future table we get to celebrate. He Harkens back to Isaiah and a little shout out for our women's Bible study. I love that we're going through Isaiah. Here's what Isaiah says about that table fellowship. The Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast, rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow and of aged wine, well-refined. And it will be said on that day, behold the goodness of our God. Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. And we get to recline at table with him. And then we get to sit for how long? An unending feast into eternity. I believe we're still finite beings. We don't become infinite beings. We're finite beings living into eternity with an unending celebration of sitting. It was a full day on Saturday. We did fall fury from 7 a.m. till about 4 p.m. But for me, The sweetness of still coming back home and sitting around the dinner table and eating together as a family. If you don't eat together as a family, I'd encourage you. For me, it is one of the delights and highlights of my life, sitting around with good friends and good food and just being present together. Jesus promises this eternal fellowship with him. And then the reality that those who enjoy Jesus for eternity might not be those many of us suspect. Jesus says... And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. That there are those around us that we get to be and invite into this kingdom. Though from the outside, it might not look like they were the ones that got in. Jesus says the first will be last and the last will be first. So I'm going to invite the worship team up. Because you guys remember the question that the person asked at the beginning? Lord, Will those who are saved be few? Jesus is gathering and people respond. And so the question that person wanted to know, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And yet when Jesus tells stories, sometimes he'll tell them in third person, did you catch the word he used as he told this story? It was in the second person. He took the question and said, I want to make it about you that I'm talking to. And so rather than, Lord, will those who be saved be few? He turns the question and says, will the saved be you? Do we strive to gather as a family on Sundays, to read our Bible, not under spiritual obligation, and pray with desperate dependence, to pray for those that have yet to treasure Jesus, that God is actually calling hearts. There's the question. May I pray that over us as we continue in worship. Jesus, you're so kind to us.
May we hear your words. May we feel the weight. And yet may we feel the invitation and the joy of what it means to dine with you. Reveal and draw us closer to yourself. Always we pray for your glory. Amen.